The scripture reading this morning is from the sixth chapter of Acts, the first seven verses. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. What you heard in the reading this morning was just a tiny sliver of a very large story. You know how stories are, right? They progress. They go from here to there, and there's movement in stories. And I would invite you during this series that we're in, in the book of Acts, to remember that it's a story. Uh, those of us who have a rather high view of the Word of God sometimes fall into a trap or an error. And the trap or the error goes something like this. We look at a verse wherever it is, and we say, here is a propositional truth concerning God. And while that's legitimate on many occasions, it's also problematic on many occasions. Why? Because you can't understand whatever proposition it is that you're talking about without it being in the context of the story. Story is a way of telling truth. Of course, you can tell a falsehood with story. But I ran across, uh, well, who was it this week? I, I read a bunch of people. I think it was N.T. Wright who said, and I had never thought of it like this. It's, it's a fascinating phrase. He said, sometimes story is the only way to tell truth. It, it carries weight. It has power, and it's a unit. Now, I say all that to say this. Whenever we look at this story about the early church, I think, at least for my part, whenever I'm preaching, we need to circle back around to the context. So for those of you who think it a bit tedious to do so, I beg your indulgence because I'm going to routinely do so. I'm going to remind you that it's in the context of a larger story because that's how we understand it best. 
Also, just as an aside, um, theologians, you know, biblical scholars, they look at stories like the book of Acts and they do their best to divide it up into parts, right? And there's all kinds of ways to divide story up into parts. You could say, here's part one, two, three, four, here's the development of the story, and, and all those things are wonderful. And so I decided I would divide up the book of Acts for you in three parts. This is no scholar, it's just me, okay? So you know it's not scholarly, it's just me. It, consider the story of the book of Acts this way. Part 1, basically chapters 1 through 12, focus on the original community. The early community of Christ followers. Let me put it another way. The Christ followers who were so early in the development they didn't even know what to call themselves. The Christ followers who were so early in the development they didn't even know how to function. They were learning along the way. You see that in 1 through 12. Dramatic things happening. All of them appear to be a surprise to the apostles, and they're always adjusting. This new original community. But roughly, chapter 13, things begin to change. And from about 13 on, let's say, for instance, 13 through 21, just in an arbitrary way, we see this original community expanding so this community expands dramatically. This is where you hear about the journeys of Paul and Silas and Barnabas. This is where you hear about churches like Thessalonica and Corinth and Philippi, right? The list goes on. You see this original community just exploding on history and expanding. That's through about chapter 21. Now from about chapter 22 to 28, it's kind of hard to really capture a storyline. But here's my suggestion. Chapter 23 through 20, 22 through 28 is the establishment of the promise universally. Because at the end of the book of Acts, you'll recall that Paul's in prison for roughly two years. And during that time, he entertains one guest after another and he continues to preach and to write. And some of the greatest parts of the New Testament come from Paul's letters in prison. They're instructing the church, the now established community that is expanding universally how to live, how to think, how to be. Now, we don't have all those letters in Acts, of course. It's just an overview of where Paul was and what he did. We have the letters later in the New Testament. Now, having said that, this is a big, long introduction, but I've enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> when you enter any part of this story, you also see sequence, right? So we're in part one, as I'm describing it right? The establishment or the original community. And even within that story, you see movement. And so here's what I want to tell you. Today, I'm going to unfold the movement in about three chapters, basically five through seven, five, six, and seven. And that's the way my sermon outline develops. For those of you who are really keen on sermon outlines, it begins this way. In this story, we only read a portion of it. Remember about those who were appointed to serve and wait on tables. In this story, before and after, here's what we see. 
we see a movement from proclamation to miracles. What do I mean by that? You remember last week that Peter was proclaiming the good news. And he and John and the other disciples got in a passel of trouble over it. And the authorities said, here's what we want you to do. Stop it already. Don't preach anymore. We'll leave you alone. You can, in effect, keep your beliefs quiet and to yourself. You want to believe in this Jesus thing? That's okay. We got lots of religions all over this Roman Empire. Go ahead and believe in that Jesus. But here's what we want you to do. We want you to keep it to yourself. Because you're stirring up all kinds of trouble. Of course, the kind of trouble they were stirring up is they were sharing what they knew about Jesus and other people were buying into it. And that was trouble for the religious officials among the Jews and for the Romans as well. But this proclamation led to, it seems as though it led to, miracles. Notice that Peter, James, John, and the others are proclaiming the good news. And as they proclaim the good news, it's like miracles start popping up out of the ground. One of the things I love about uh, living in the north is watching flowers come up out of the ground. Um, I've mentioned this before, but when you live in South Florida, flowers don't come up out of the ground. You, you plant them in the ground, and then the, and during the season that we call summer, it just scorches them and you have to pull them up. There's no annuals and perennials. They're just, you can't do that. Here, these beautiful tulips in my front yard just appear miraculously out of nowhere. These daffodils, which are brilliant in yellow, appear in my backyard, and it's lovely. And other things that my wife's planted that I can't even name, they just pop up. That's the image I want to give you. The disciples are basically just standing up there and proclaiming the good news and saying, I got to tell you about Jesus, and boom, miracles start popping up. It's not like they went out and said to themselves, we're going to create some miracles out there. That'll do it. They didn't do that. They just went out and proclaimed the good news and miracles popped up. It was from proclamation to the miraculous. It's amazing how that happened. Don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. They said that not once to them, but twice and probably more than is recorded even in the book of Acts. And on the second occasion when they said that, they pulled them in for prison put them again up in front of the court and said, don't talk like this anymore. Stop doing what you're doing. And their response was very simple. We can't. Sorry, it's a divine compulsion. We have to obey God rather than you. Sorry. And then Peter seems not to be able to learn the lesson of staying out of trouble and instead of just ending with that sentence, he starts preaching again. He starts preaching about the resurrection. He starts preaching about how they're responsible for killing Jesus. And he starts preaching about repentance. And it's, if you read the text, you're reading along, it's when he gets to the line about repentance that they can't stand it anymore. And they just rage against him. What is it about a call to repentance that makes people angry? I'll let you answer that for yourself because I think you have the answer. It does make us angry because it shines a searchlight on our soul. 
And not too many things are as uncomfortable as that. So he calls for repentance, and they become very angry. And the text says they wanted to kill him. I mean, this time it was like, no more beatings, let's just kill him. No more imprisonments, let's just annihilate him. That's the only way to quiet their voices. And fortunately for them, Gamaliel, a very well-respected Pharisee, as a matter of fact, uh, in the Hillel tradition, Gamaliel is the man. He's sort of like a first century version of Moses for the Pharisees. And, by the way, he's also the teacher of what we'll later call the Apostle Paul. Gamaliel steps forward and he says, Gentlemen, I have uh, some advice for you. Don't get radical. Don't kill these people. Now, I have to wonder if Gamaliel was not saying everything he was thinking. You know, frequently that's true. We have an idea, but we don't tell you everything behind the idea. I have to wonder if Gamaliel was thinking to himself, if you cut off the head of the serpent, there's going to be 15 more serpents that are going to pop up out of the ground. You think you can destroy this with violence? No, you'll just reproduce it with violence. But instead of saying that, which he might have thought, he said to them, I have some advice for you. If this is of God, you're not going to be able to stop it. And if it's of man, it's going to die on the vine. So don't kill him. They took his advice and instead they beat them. That's a, yeah, small price to pay, I guess, for your life. Uh, they gave him 40 lashes, save one, because they were always worried about going just a little bit further than the law had instructed them to, so they would give him 39, just in case they lost count. Isn't that gracious of them? They beat him and then they let him go. It's from proclamation to the miraculous. And the miraculous doesn't end. The rest of the story of the book of Acts seems to play out that thing over and over again. When the church proclaims Jesus, miracles happen. The second stage of development in this larger story where we find ourselves is from miracles to administration. How boring is that? From the miraculous to the mundane? I mean, some of you who are very analytical and uh, administrative type, you're saying, no, no, that's just wonderful. Well, well, most people don't think it's wonderful. They want to stay in the miraculous. Right? I know there's some of you out there who like order and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the miracles are amazing. And then all of a sudden, right in the midst, look what was happening <laughs> with these people. The text tells us that Peter and John were healing people daily at Solomon's portico. Not just the guy who was lame from last week, but people from everywhere. They were just bringing them in in mass. And all of them were being healed. It's even implied, though not exactly stated as true. You could argue with me, but I don't think it's exactly stated as true. It's at least implied that they would bring people and place them in the pathway of Peter so that his shadow would be cast upon them. And even with his shadow, they would be healed. We don't know if that was just a description of what they did or if it actually happened. It may have happened. I wouldn't be surprised. 
The miracles continue. And in the midst of all these incredible miracles, people start complaining. Really? Everybody's being healed? Earlier they shared everything in common and nobody had any needs. And in the midst of all that glory, people start complaining. There are certain widows who said, the other widows are getting a better deal than we are. The Hebrew widows are being taken care of. The Greek Jewish widows are not being taken care of. They're being overlooked. Now, it's interesting. Luke doesn't tell us whether or not that was true. Do you notice? He doesn't say that was true. He said that was the complaint. But here's what's interesting. They address the issue. True or not. That's always a charitable approach, isn't it? For leadership, especially leadership in the church. I can't tell you how many times over the last number of years, uh, I or the elders or the deacons or somebody has received an avalanche of criticism about something. And sometimes it's just not true. But really, that's not the point. Not if you're going to be a servant of Christ. And it's really hard for me to remember this. Oh my goodness, it's hard for me to remember this. Because I want to set the facts straight. And it gives me another opportunity to preach, which I want to do. But that's not what happened here. They heard about a problem, whether true or not, and there had to be some truth and maybe some not truth to it. They addressed the issue. They said, well, let's uh, gather together seven people, basically, who are full of wisdom and the Spirit, and by implication, people who know how to put stuff together. Administrators, people who organize, people who have the gift of mercy, but people who know how to make it work. Let's make sure nobody falls through the cracks. And so among those people was Stephen, a man filled with the Spirit and obviously with wisdom. And he was given, along with others, the responsibility of caring for the widows. And by extension, we suggest that he cared for lots of people, not just the widows. Because the disciples, that is called apostles, were designated as using their time to preach the word and to pray. And these people that we frequently call the earliest deacons, seven of them, were given the responsibility to care for those with needs. Because the gospel is more than just word and prayer, it's actually the hands and feet of Jesus. It's about deeds as well, and that was important. So Stephen uh, decided to take up his responsibility with the others and wait on tables. Here's what I want you to notice about uh, Stephen's waiting on tables. You don't hear anything about it. Not a word. I'm not suggesting he didn't wait on tables. I think he did. But there's really no mention of it. It just says he was selected to wait on tables, and then the story continues. And on one occasion... He found himself in front of the Sanhedrin. And like Peter, he was preaching. 
It was proclaiming the good news. It always seems to circle back around to that, doesn't it, in the early church? Every time they find a way to proclaim the good news. I want you to notice something else. A man who's chosen to serve tables clearly has the gift of proclamation. This man could be seen as someone who only had a responsibility and should have stuck to it and didn't have the gift for something else. The point is, Stephen had a remarkable gift of oratory. Listen to his sermon. He also had the remarkable ability to step into the gospel story and allow the Holy Spirit to anoint him with such power that people were moved. And that man, who had those gifts, was selected to wait on tables. It doesn't mean that because you're selected for one thing, you can't do another. It also doesn't mean if you have exalted gifts, however you want to define them, you might also be expected to wait on tables. I just think it's a fascinating look at the man Stephen. In other words, he saw the need, he met it, and he proclaimed. Now what Stephen did is he gave an overview of Israel's history to these very learned scholars. And what it was was an overview of the history of Israel so that they could see Jesus. It was the whole point of the overview of the history of Israel. I want you to see the Messiah, that is Jesus, in the story of your people and mine. But as usual, when he got to the end, he makes a critical turn that gets him in a whole heap of trouble. See, the two most sacred things in Jewish religious life were the temple where God dwelt exclusively and if not exclusively in a special way because you couldn't just do sacrifices anywhere once the temple was established. The temple was the place to do it. The temple was the place for the high priest, the holy place and the holy of holies. The temple was special. The temple was an object and it was a place. The second thing that was incredibly important to the Jewish religious establishment was the law. The law they thought to be absolutely eternal, completely infallible, and beyond change. The law itself was a stake in the ground. And here's the problem. Stephen addressed both of them. And he did something with both of them that enraged them. The first thing is he said, this temple, it's no different than any other. I mean any other building. Because God doesn't need a building to dwell in. The temple was made by mere human hands. How can you contain God in such a place? You've heard the theme multiple times, even in the Old Testament. But Stephen brings it back up, and in effect, he's basically saying, you're almost worshiping the temple. This temple is not forever. And this good news doesn't reside in the temple. It resides beyond the temple. That's the first mistake he made. The second mistake he made is he said, 
in the history of our nation, we have laws. And you know what they're for? They're just one stage in the process of revealing the Messiah. They're not what you think they are. They're actually road markers to the Messiah. Paul later would say, the law is righteous and holy and good, but the law wasn't about the law. The law was about pointing to Jesus, who fulfilled the law and the prophets. Stephen is saying, your whole history and my history, I understand it well, has got to be reinterpreted in light of Jesus Christ. That made them enraged. Now, it didn't help that he also called them stiff-necked people. That didn't help. You're a bunch of jugheads. You won't listen and you rebel just like the prophets against, the pro- against Jesus just like your ancestors did the prophets. That didn't help. But there may be another thing that didn't help. Even though we haven't gotten to the place where Peter understands that the gospel is really for everyone, where the sheep comes down with unclean animals, even though we haven't gotten to that place, if you take a look at the early proclamation of Peter all the way up until now, you see a door starting to open. This good news is for everyone. It's for all nations. And that too must have enraged them. Why? Because unfortunately, the notion of the chosen people of God had become a very inward focus. And people like the Pharisees, and others in the Jewish establishment were known to have actually penned words like this. It's hard to believe, but it really is true. That the Gentiles were created by God to stoke the fires of hell. How about that, Gentiles? Make you feel good? That was the most severe approach in some rabbinic traditions about what the Gentiles were good for. Uh, The the more mild-mannered approach is that the Gentiles were created by God so they could be servants of the Jews in paradise. That's a lot better. I'd rather be that than stoking the fires of hell. But here's the thing. Peter and Stephen and eventually Paul especially are going to turn the table upside down. They're going to say, not only is that not true, I'll tell you what's true, this promise that came from Abraham wasn't just for us, it was for everybody. That's the whole idea of blessing the nations. And now is the critical turn in the road where you're seeing this open for all humanity. That too must have enraged them. So Peter... um, Lays the groundwork, Stephen builds on it, and with that declaration, he dies. I guess I didn't get the third up there. It's from service to martyrdom. I get all excited and forget my points. (laughs) And the point there is Stephen started out as a servant of God, and his service led to martyrdom. The the last point um, is this, from death to life. When Stephen uh, says these words, they are enraged at him. As a matter of fact, at one point, 
the description is twofold. They ground their teeth together. It's, it's a phrase or group of words that's used for snarling animals. Well, he's telling them about the story of the Old Testament and how Jesus fits into it. They grind their teeth and then they cover their ears so they don't have to hear his words and they rush upon him. And they take him outside that particular place away from the temple and they stone him. They stone him to death and while they stone him, you know the story, he looks up apparently under the clouds and he says, oh my, look what I see. I see Jesus. I see the Messiah. I see the Son of God. And he's standing at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's quite a welcome home party, isn't it? I see heaven open. And now I see what's real. And that's the way he ends his life. But just before it's snuffed out, he basically repeats the words of Jesus. Who on the cross said, Father, please don't hold this against their, their charge. I, Lord, give them a break. And Stephen says, Lord, don't hold this against them. Be the loving, forgiving God that you have been to me. Extend grace to them. And he dies. This activity of moving from death to life is remarkable, isn't it? I mean, not just in the story, but in reality for many martyrs. And I'd like to suggest in reality for many Christ followers who don't have a life that includes martyrdom. And what I'd like to suggest is there's a theme here, moving from death to life. And the theme could be summarized with one word, surrender. There's some way in which when we move spiritually from death to life, we're surrendering ourselves, our way, our will, and we're surrendering to God. We're saying, God, I understand that the only way for me to have life is for me to give up on me. I can't do it on my own. It's utterly clear. I can't find meaning or purpose on my own. It's absolutely clear to me. I've got to surrender myself to you. And when you surrender, you die in a spiritual sense. You die to yourself and you live to God. I also want to remind you of something, especially for those of you who are here who made that surrender long ago. It's an initial act, this thing called surrender to God, death to self and life to God. But it's not just an initial act. It's an ongoing activity because God continues to call us to surrender ourselves to him, our agenda to his agenda, our life to his life. It's something we learn every day. 
It's why Jesus said, probably, take up your cross and follow me. And part of that activity of surrender is really quite simple. It's service. When I serve, I surrender. I surrender my time. I surrender what might be my desires. I surrender my agenda. And I serve. It's not just surrender of self in order to find new life in God. It's, it's surrender to God's way. Right? That's what Peter, John, and Stephen do. They surrender to God's way. You know, sometimes when you surrender to God's way, He rescues you. And sometimes He doesn't. It's God's way. Peter routinely surrendered his life to God and preached fearlessly. And on occasion, he was thrown in prison and this time beat. And another time, he was thrown in prison as well. And God released him miraculously, as the text that precedes this describes. When the disciples were put in prison, they were released and they went out and started proclaiming again this miraculous release from prison. Wonderful! Do you think maybe Stephen... When he saw the first stone fly, thought God would build an invisible barrier, protect him. He didn't. Do you think at some point when Peter was down near the end of his life, he thought, oh, I've been here before. I'll get out of it again, but he didn't. He was a martyr. Surrendering to God's way means surrendering to God's way. And on this occasion, God's way was to allow Stephen to die and thus to inherit eternal life. Oh, by the way, Paul later pens an incredibly famous phrase. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Tell me I'm reading something into it. That would be a legitimate charge. But I wonder when he penned those words if he wasn't thinking of Stephen. Why? Because he watched it happen. He held their coats while they stoned him to death. In other words, before Paul penned the words, Stephen demonstrated the words, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I see heaven open. Surrendering to God's way does not always mean rescue. Sometimes it means death. There's something else. We surrender to God's point of view when we surrender to God. We surrender to a new vision of reality. Sometimes we think of heaven, and at one level rightly so, as out there and beyond everything. But at other times, we're counseled to think of heaven as the presence of God right here. In any case, what we are certainly counseled to do as Christ followers is to embrace the reality of the invisible as much as we embrace the reality of the visible. Because whatever vision it was that Stephen saw, 
It was a parallel view of reality in his circumstances. That's heaven. It's a viewpoint that God gives us and asks us to surrender to. Surrender your life to this, sounds weird, spiritual bipolar vision of reality. <laughs> Both things are going on. Trust me. This uh, community of Christ followers, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Um, makes me wonder if some church ought to name itself Christ Community Church or something. It's just a, a wonderful story. This story is a model um, for Christians, but it's also a description of the creative reality of God. What I mean by that is there's a model here, but before we err on trying to reproduce the model, let us remember that it's the creative activity of God that's always at work. Sometimes God does it this way, and other times He does it that way. But what we can be sure of is that God is at work. He's working among us. He's producing miracles. He's allowing us to serve, and He's giving us resurrection life. It's always present in the community of Christ followers. And that's a wonderful promise. The second thing I, I'm, I'm reminded of is this community of Christ followers. It's all about, I love our phrase concerning our church, reflecting the redeeming grace and transforming truth of Jesus Christ in Bloomington and beyond. This church, this early church, is all about reflecting the redeeming grace and transforming truth of Jesus Christ. They can't keep quiet about it. They keep talking about it. Uh, William Temple uh, Archbishop of Canterbury once said that the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. <laughs> That's a pretty good phrase. Maybe a little bit exaggeration. There may be some other institutions that would claim that title. But the point is this. The church doesn't exist for itself. The church exists for the world. And we're called to it. So we're constantly telling this story about Jesus. And we see miracles pop up. Service to our brothers and sisters in Christ is also not negotiable. This is a point to say thank you to two things, and let me do it. Let me say thank you to the deacons, those of you who are current deacons and those of you who are, have served on behalf of the church. You do a remarkable work in the name of Jesus Christ. And your legacy and your tradition, your lineage, is as old as the New Testament itself. It's absolutely essential. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Second thing is thank you for those of you, and it's probably most of you, who contribute to the caring of others through the deacons and by yourself. We couldn't do what we do with the deacons if it wasn't every Sunday when we have communion you make a cash offering to care for those who have needs. It's the body of Christ at work. Thank you. Thank you. For those of you who you know who you are, who go way beyond the deacons in terms of your contribution, individual contribution to needs in the church, most often when I give you a call, you say, sure, I'll take care of that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Your Christ community at work. 
The other thank you is this. Thank you for your stewardship in the body of Christ. Here's why. Because you and I individually, we can't meet all the needs. But we can contribute as stewards of this wonderful message to the organization that can meet those needs. I don't like talking about money. You know that. But when you make financial contributions to this body of Christ, you extend your arm and your reach. You are doing things through this church that you couldn't possibly do on your own just because you're a good steward of the resources God has given you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Please continue. Not only financially, but in service to others. The cost of discipleship is big, isn't it? We see it in Stephen and we see it in other places. And we have a different view on life. Our times, if we're Christ followers, are completely in God's hands. And we must trust Him no matter what. In a worldview, is a new kind of reality. The visible world is only part. The invisible world is where God is working. So let's live like it by faith. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for your word, uh, for the truth that's in it, for all that we can see when we go back to the story time and time again. We pray, Lord, that you will not only enlighten our hearts and minds, but you will conform our will to yours, that as we walk away from this worship service, as we study your word, as we pray, as we serve, you'll transform our hearts. You'll give us an increasingly new view of the world, because we're constantly pulled back into the other view of the world, that, that sort of singular one that looks at the world as the visible reality that's around us. But you call us to live by faith. And that means to believe that you're at work in ways that we cannot see. Your plans are above us, beyond us, and we should trust you. We thank you for those opportunities to trust you and those times where you reveal to us what you were about in our lives. It gives us encouragement and courage to continue to live the same and to invite others to follow. For this, we give you thanks. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.